if a doctor um, wants to expose this patient to new kind of creative or alternative uh, treatments, a lot of times that's going to be met with rejection. But if we can start them with a little bit of controlled cannabis, now it opens them up not only to recognizing their situation, but to maybe exploring some additional treatments, right? Yeah. Uh, welcome, Judson and David, to uh, State House with Frank Santos. Uh, today, we're going to talk uh, about uh, veterans and uh, uh, the effect that uh, war fighting has on veterans uh, when they come back to uh, civ civilian life and how they deal with uh, uh, some of the trauma that uh, they see when they're when they're overseas and. Um, and specifically, we'll get into uh, the importance of it is because of the state of Texas um, medical cannabis program is going through a change and a, uh, an expansion. And one of the things we want to make sure is that we're doing it in the correct way. And um, so that just kind of give you a little overview of, of what we're looking at today. And uh, Judson uh, Kaufman, um, you have a, a huge bio, so I'll just say... Uh, uh, former Navy SEAL and serial entrepreneur, and uh, uh, and you maybe give a little bit more about yourself in a second. And David Hinkle, who uh, heads up uh, the uh, SEAL Legacy Foundation and uh, and several other things, very involved with raising money for uh, SEAL families. Uh, and David, in a minute, maybe talk a little bit about your connection to um, to the veteran community. That's Great, it. yeah, thanks, sure. Frank. Glad to be here. So, tell me a little bit about um, tell me about your background. You know, you know, uh, I say former SEAL that, that that means certain things to certain people. But for this discussion, tell me a little bit about kind of your journey that to get you here. Sure. So, um, pretty typical Texas kid. I grew up in Longview, so northeast Texas, just outside the city. I uh, grew up with horses and four wheelers. Spent a lot of time in the woods, played soccer and football, baseball growing up. And then after high school, went to community college and then 9-11 happened, which inspired me to join the military. So I dropped out of college and enlisted in the Navy um, right after 9-11. I spent the next eight years on active duty, did three tours to Iraq, um, heavy combat. So I did about 300 combat operations during that period. So I was in Baghdad in 04, 06, 07, 08, and 09. Um, in 09, I shifted to an instructor position and then separated in 2010. After that, I went to work for a defense contractor, um, but working here in the States, running um, a screening and selection program for the Navy. So working underneath the recruiting command. Did that while I finished my undergrad in business at Belmont University. Then I went to work for a startup, um, spent a couple of years there, and then started my own company in 2012. Moved back to Texas, um, used the GI Bill to get a master's degree in business from McCombs. While I was there, I co-founded another company called Desert Door Distillery, which has become the fastest growing distillery in the history of Texas. It's a great company. And then a year later, co-founded a company called TerraDepth, which builds autonomous submarines and builds um, software tools to visualize ocean data. And that's based here in Austin as well. And earlier this year, I resigned from that to pursue a new career 
as a speaker and coach. And so I'm focused on that as well as my family. So I'm a dedicated husband and father of three. In my spare time, I like to fish. Uh, I like to hunt. I like to travel. I like to read, play music. Um, I spend some time supporting a few different veterans groups, which we'll get into here in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Thank you for that. David, you want to just kind of give us a little a little history on you? Yeah. So I uh, grew up in Dallas, went to school in Philadelphia, um, worked in finance, basically supporting uh, long, short equity hedge funds for couple decades and then finally uh, grew up to become an entrepreneur uh, and, and chase down a little bit of what Judson did in like two years. I'm like four years in and I don't have one company that's been sold, but he's got like four, I think now, but uh, I haven't sold any <laughs> company. <laughs> so uh, no, so we're, um, uh, so do a few different things, development started a CPG company here in Austin and then, um, I've been fortunate to be involved with a couple organizations um, uh, really centered around just raising money for the Seal Legacy Foundation. So I just throw their Austin events. I'm actually not, I don't head up anything or, or I'm not a part of Seal Legacy mm. Foundation, but in raising money for Seal Legacy, we stood up our own 501c3 called the Warrior National Foundation, where we throw a yearly event that raises money um, mainly for Seal Legacy Foundation. And then we also do, we're, we're doing a little bit of stuff to in the anti-human trafficking um, arena. Oh, okay. So we try to do a little of that. Our, our stuff at Warrior National for now um, is really, uh, you know, all about raising money for SEAL Legacy, as I said. And then we've also now stood up a couple scholarships, one at UT McCombs, one at the Wharton School, um, in an effort to get special operations guys um, a little bit of assistance when they come back to our point, you know, we're talking about guys, how do they acclimate when they get back? Uh, you know, our feeling was there's so many guys that have all this unbelievable leadership roles when they get here, if you give, you know, if they pursue an MBA along with that, um, part of their resume, we feel like they're really, really in high demand. Um, so we're trying to help with that. You know, they're not, they're not high paid while they're deployed, obviously. So when they come back, staring down a $50,000 a year MBA is, I think there's some barriers to that for some guys. So we're trying to at least, you know, call it four scholarships at a time, kind of alleviate a little bit of that. So Yeah. And so mentioning that, I think is real important because I think one of the things that, uh, like the people that are listening and, and viewing this podcast want to know is, you know, what happens when... You know, someone who's in a leadership role is overseas, is in charge of uh, incredibly important things, is doing incredibly important things for the country, and then leaves and comes back to civilian life, and all of a sudden, things aren't the same. Don't have the same responsibilities. Um, uh, and, and from what I hear, and it, it, it it's uh, it's true. I have a, a nephew in this case, and you don't get the you know, you don't get the res- you're not getting any respect, and you're not getting the kind of help. Uh, from, you know, from your, you know, group around you, you don't have that sort of team approach um, when you're working at a particular company or whatever. And so it changes everything and, 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 and impacts um, uh, warfighters when they come back. So t- tell us a little bit about what you experienced when you came back, Jesse. Sure. Yeah, happy to share. So it was very difficult, but when 
I was in it, I didn't quite realize what a tough spot I was in. I didn't, I didn't recognize that I had a mental health issue. I don't know if it was pride or ego that just prohibited me from seeing what was happening. But the, the punchline is I was super depressed after I left the military. Mm. And I actually in 2010 or so, I penned an article and published it um, about how special operations are not very susceptible to PTSD. At that time, I was suffering pretty severely from PTSD. So I was in denial, right? And that's a common coping mechanism for right. human beings who experience any kind of a trauma or just trying to deal with daily, daily issues. You ask about what happens. So trauma affects the human brain pretty much the same no matter who you are. We have this part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. And when we have a traumatic experience, our brain does some rewiring within that part of, of itself to protect us from that experience and, and experiencing that again. So in a way, our brain sort of compartmentalizes some things. So to do that, it has to build some walls and it shuts off certain neurotransmitters. So now we have uh, altered the state of the brain so that it doesn't function in a natural way. But we can continue to do that job. So this is why someone can, can have 16 combat deployments and appear to be totally healthy, fine, and a high performer. Right. Meanwhile, their brain is, is shutting down, or parts of their brain have been turned off. And this happens to you know mothers who experience postpartum uh, depression. It, anybody who experiences tra trauma goes through this to varying degrees. What makes it, I think, especially difficult for military veterans and first responders, so I think firefighters really are the worst, but police as well, firefighters have to deal with quite a bit um, of nasty stuff. So what makes it heightened for these groups is for military specifically, when you leave the military, you lose a sense of purpose mm. and you lose that community, which you mentioned. And these are critical to human psychological health. Um, and you don't realize how fulfilled you are from the purpose that you're serving at least for me, you know, the first year or so I was in the military, I felt it every day. And then over time, you sort of ease into this as, as kind of your, your role in the world. It's no longer like, yeah, the red, white, and blue. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, this is my job. I'm getting up. I'm doing my job. You sort of, you lose sight of it. But meanwhile, I think your subconscious is still very much enjoying the benefits of that service mentality, right? So that goes away. Um, and also the military does a very good job of sort of teaching you that your identity is your job. And I think that's critical for the military to do. Um, it has put our military in the place that it's in as, as a highly effective organization. But when you leave that, your identity stays there and you, you no longer feel like you know who you are. So your, your prefrontal cortex has been rewired and partially shut down. You've lost your sense of identity. You've lost community. And unfortunately, I think the way that our society is um, often responds to veterans and the way the VA responds to veterans who have trauma is to look at them as victims and right. offer all this help and say, oh, you poor person, like you've dealt with this. And over time that starts to sink in as a reality. It's like, oh, I'm a victim, yeah. I'm broken. Yeah. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with me. Mm. So all these things add up, I think, to create um, a pretty nasty situation for a lot of veterans and not just combat veterans. You know, 
3% of the military fights in combat, but I think 30 or 40% experience PTSD. You can be one level removed from that type of violence and those types of extreme experiences and still be affected by it. You know, if you're an intel analyst and you send a unit out and they had bad intel and they end up killing civilians, like that's hard for you, even though you never left the, the intel shop, right? Right. right. So it, it, it happens to a lot of folks. And um, I've had a lot of friends have lost to suicide. When I was at the depths of my, of my darkest hour, I was contemplating suicide. So this is about five years ago. And thankfully, thanks to the love of a lot of people, thanks to plant medicine, thanks to time in nature, thanks to also traditional therapy and education, I've been able to turn that around from living in a state of depression, sadness, you name it. Just couldn't, I couldn't enjoy a sunset. I couldn't really enjoy spending time with people that I loved. So now I wake up early in the morning with excitement and joy and gratitude I'm highly functional. I'm generating a lot of abundance for my family, my friends, my stakeholders at these companies. Life is awesome. That's and great. it wouldn't have been possible without some of the things we're gonna talk about yeah. today. Yeah, that's fantastic. Gosh, I, I, I love hearing that story. And I, and I, you know, I know that you, you were working and I know David, you're working too with, to try and help as many of, you know, of your fellow veterans get to the same place. Cause there's a, a bunch of them out there, right? And they, they're not getting, they may not have a good, um, you know, family setting where they get all the love and the care and, you know, people surround them and help them and they may just be on their own and you kind of get into a, a bad cycle. Um, and then once you start going down that cycle, if someone doesn't pull you out of it, you may end up homeless. Yeah. You may end up, you know, you may just end up in a really bad place that that is going to be very difficult. I, I talked about this um, on a, uh, on another uh, podcast and, and I've, you know, I've never been to combat, but um, I, I lost my wife in 2015. And the one thing I didn't recognize, and I think it's why this is a personal issue for me, is when I when it first happened, it's it's a it's traumatic. You know, you lose somebody. I was married for 25 years, mm. had two young boys um, who are now um, uh, older. It was, it was in 2015, so it wasn't that long ago, but. Um, but as time goes on, you, the one thing I found that I was trying to do, and I, and I figure it's got to be the same thing for anybody that's, that's, that's had some trauma in their life. You try to get back to the place where you were normal mm-hmm. and you can't, there, there's, there isn't that normal is gone. I mean, it, that place you were is no longer exists. And so you spend a lot of energy trying to, recreate it, trying to, you know, in your mind, you know, you'd almost fantasize, you know, I'm, I'm okay, you know, and you, you try to get there. And, uh, and I think that, um, what's really troubling about it is, you know, I'm one of so many people that go through that. And I, I think what happens to a lot of people that are in that situation is they try to figure out a way to cope with that, you know, you, you don't know what that emptiness is. Uh, you're desperate to get back to the normalcy that you used to feel and you can't. And so you cope with it in different ways. What do you find? Um, I think we know, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, your experiences with your own experiences. And then from your, some of your, uh, your buddies that have had to try and cope with that kind of trauma. Yeah. So the way that human beings cope with this stuff 
typically it's one of three ways, right? We, we suppress those emotions, we repress those emotions, or we escape. For me, and I think for a lot of veterans, I used a lot of repression. So sort of subconsciously push those feelings down as opposed to suppression, which is when you, you know the feeling is there and you just, you say, nope, I'm gonna tough it out. I'm not gonna cry, I'm not gonna cry, right? right? This was more subconscious. I didn't even acknowledge the problem. I didn't even recognize the problem. That is repression, right? And then escape. And they're both dangerous. I think escape is common across the country in this culture. You know, if you look at business people, um, they escape through workaholism and alcoholism. So think about your typical Wall Street guy, David, who you, you've been around. Maybe you were one of these guys once upon a time. Yeah. <laughs> Brag, bragging about 70 hours a week and bragging about how many shots of whiskey you can take, right? Yeah. Those are typically escape mechanisms, yeah. right? And if it, it's, it's manageable if you know, you're a professional business person and you're just doing that on Friday and Saturday. But if you're someone who's experienced trauma and the only way for you to like make it through the day is to escape through something like alcohol or overworking or whatever else, mm -hmm. you get further and further away from homeostasis yeah. and it becomes harder and harder and harder to bring yourself back. And, it, and ultimately what starts to feel like the only option is something like suicide right. or total self-destruction. And that's why we have so many veterans every day that are choosing that choice. Yeah, it's awful. You know, and, and it's, uh, you know, in, in my case, you know, I had, I had two boys, so it was sort of like I had this stake in the ground that no matter how bad I got and I hit, I hit rock bottom, you know, like everybody else does. But, you know, I always knew I had to reach back up and, and I had these two boys to take care of. Yeah. And if you don't have that, if you don't have a purpose, I think you said that earlier, yeah. if you don't have that purpose, I could see where you just, just keep going, you know, why not? You know, what's, what's the point? It's a weird place to be, and I think that um, what you're saying is, uh, you know, people find all kinds of different ways to use alcohol, they use, you know, drugs, they use, you know, other kind of risky behavior, just like you said, self-destruction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the one of the important things that we're we're trying to educate the public, policymakers, regulators is is to understand that uh, people that have these uh, conditions, you know, whether it's uh, PTSD or other mental health conditions, you know, it's a real condition that needs to be dealt with. And it's, it's real difficult when, um, if you try to ignore it, and particularly in this case, when you're talking about cannabis mm -hmm. or, or any plant-based, you know, medicine that um, is currently, you know, seen as a, a legal drug on the, at, at the federal schedule. So in Texas, they're, they're trying their best and they've been moving really slowly, but probably for the betterment of the program. Because if you look around the country, uh, there's been some really bad programs um, that started up, started with medical, ended up recreational. The whole thing fell, you know, it's is a problem. And now they're trying to pull back. Yeah, Texas did not want to go through that, and and I agree with that. Um, I, you know, what I'd like to help the state do is figure out how do we create this this regulatory process. That really does provide access, provides cost-effective therapies, and uh, involves physicians with the patient so that they actually are getting therapeutic doses so that it works, and 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 helps to get rid of the stigma 
that this particular therapy, even though it's alternative to uh, pharmaceuticals, it's, you know, um, I have a brother who's a physician and just a quick story. He, um, he deals in uh, rehabilitation. He's a physical medicine rehabilitation uh, physician in Colorado. And it's, and he said when he got out of school, he's two years younger than me, uh, out of a residency, the first thing they did was put him into clinics and VA hospitals and so he could get practice and work on patients. And it was right about the time that the pharmaceutical companies were pushing hard on opioids. Mm. And looking back now, he said that they <coughs> essentially they would come in and they were pitching it to the physicians um, and to him as if it was kind of like a vitamin, mm. I mean, as innocuous as a vitamin, that if you didn't prescribe this for your patients that had pain, then you really weren't practicing medicine very well. You know, yeah, kind of that was the whole- infuriating. It, it was infuriating. He said he was getting to the point where he was prescribing such a large doses. And then on top of, you know, Oxycontin, he was, you know, prescribing Percocet because their, you know, their tolerance had, had gotten so high uh, for Oxycontin that he started to feel so uncomfortable that he titrated all of his patients off and he stopped. Good for him. 100%. <laughs> and I asked him about cannabis. He's never had, it's never been part of his practice. Um, he's never prescribed it, uh, not for any other reason than he just hasn't. He hasn't had a patient that's asked him about it. But um, he said that, you know, he's glad that there's an, an alternative to opioids for things like pain. And uh, because he would rather them uh, be getting their, um, you know, getting help that way than getting on a very addictive drug. And, and then, and I know that that happens a lot with you know, with vets coming back, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, that whatever they're feeling, it was like the thing was just, you know, load them up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I was separating, the VA had a questionnaire and I filled it out. And no one ever called me, but a box showed up in my mailbox full of pills. And I knew enough at that point, I'd started to see some of the things that were happening in the veteran community with guys who were just taking lots of pills to deal with their problems. I threw them all in the trash and I had some issues. Like I was in a lot of physical pain from some injuries, yeah. whatever else. And so I started to explore alternative treatments, you know, once I figured out I had a real problem. Um, and I'm glad that I did because I've had a couple of buddies um, end their lives and all of them were using some sort of a prescribed pharmaceutical to help them deal with their issues. And all of them were drinking a lot of alcohol, mm -hmm. those two things in combination. Tell us about that. I, I want to hear, uh, uh, tell us about the, you know, as you went through that process and you started to uh, figure out that you needed some kind of, uh, some therapy that other than an addictive therapy like opioids, you know, tell us how you, how did you go through that process and how did that work for you? Yeah, so I was functioning um, by those means I mentioned earlier. So alcohol, um, some other escape mechanisms I won't get into, and then um, working my ass off, right? I, there wasn't time for me to really sit there and focus on the, on the emotional pain that I was experiencing because I was so busy. And if I wasn't busy, I was drinking. Yeah. Um, things got worse and worse and worse. So from 20... Um, probably 2011, I started to experience symptoms. So a year after I got out, it wasn't until about 2017 
that I finally recognized that I had a real issue. And it came after I experienced this anxiety attack, I tried to go to a, um, a concert and was very busy and I was trying to be hypervigilant and my systems just broke down. Mm. And I got tunnel vision, I started shaking, my wife was with me, she, um, she said, well, let's go. So we left and that's when I started. That's when I, that, that event led me to, it finally admit something was wrong. So I started first, I bought a bunch of books on human psychology and neuroscience. That started to give me a bit of a feeling of some control. It's like, okay, this is something that can be reversed. Um, so I started to feel like I had some power over it, but I still, I still didn't uh, have any relief, right? I just had some knowledge. But that gave me a little bit more confidence that if I started taking better care of myself, that maybe I could start to dig out of this hole. Yeah. And suicide wasn't an option because I had children and a wife at that point, right? And I met your children. They're, they're so cute. Thank you. Yeah, they're good dancers. You <laughs> yeah, saw they're good the dancers. That's right. Yeah, they love it. They're little <laughs> little music people. So um, the next step for me, I, I started doing traditional therapy through the VA. Okay. And after about four months of that, I still felt very depressed. So traditional would be like pharmaceuticals. No, no, no. Just therapy. Talk therapy. Just talk therapy. Yep. Okay. No, I refused pharmaceuticals. I was too afraid of okay. the results because I had just seen the shit that the companies don't want you to, yeah. to, to zero in on. But I was concerned. I was like, I'm not gonna put more chemicals in. I, I have a chemical imbalance already, which is a result of the trauma. Like, I don't think adding new chemicals is gonna be the answer. That was just my intuition. Yeah. So, um, especially foreign chemicals that were made in a laboratory by human beings who, yeah, maybe they're way smarter than me, but they're still just human beings and we're, and we're flawed. And by the way, they work for a commercial company. Yeah. who's incentivized to get this thing across the finish line, meet the minimums that the FDA requires, and then sell the thing to you. Okay, I don't think so. And, and as, we, as we've as we learned now, and also make it more addictive. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, the emails that came out of, oh man, this one's really addictive. This is this is going to be great, right? Right. Yeah. It's crazy. But yeah. just anyway, saying that they would continue in yeah. that process and, you know, to, to my brother's story about, you know, acting like it was a vitamin, but... Yeah, insanity that, that that occurred, and now we're dealing with the, you know, the repercussions of of what happened. But go ahead, continue. Yeah, and and you know, another sad part is our physicians in this country, like they they're awesome and they work their asses off, but after they finish med school, they get into their practice, their continuing education is almost nil. What they do get comes from guess who? Yeah, the pharma companies, right? They come in and do the workshop, they do a half day training, or they send them a video and education, and so they're being educated by the companies who have the most profit. And there's plenty of pharmaceuticals that have saved the world. I'm not saying down with the pharmaceutical companies. I'm just saying we need to be very careful. Yeah. And and thankfully, um, I was careful years ago when I started on this journey. But talk therapy was not very helpful for me at all. Um, around that time, I had a friend call me. He was an executive at a Fortune 20 company, SEAL veteran, combat guy, married with beautiful children, very intelligent person. And um, he said, he said, Judd, I think I'm going to end my life. Wow. And I said, okay, what can I do? And he said, there's nothing. There's nothing. I just, just wanted to tell you, man, I don't, I don't know what else to do. About three days earlier, I'd read an article about plant-based medicine and its use as a treatment for PTSD. And this was in 2017. So this is really before the psychedelic wave really hit the mainstream, before I think cannabis started to receive proper medical respect. Mm -hmm. Um so it was kind of early on, so nobody had really heard about it, but I happened to be sent this article. And I said, look, check this out. I don't know much about it, but maybe it'll work. 
he went through a program in Mexico where they administered two different plant medicines. And he called me the day after he got back. And I'll never forget what he said. And it was, his voice was totally changed. You know, the voice previously sounded like a guy who was at the bottom. He was ready to go. Three weeks later, this guy calls me. He sounds like he's on top of the world. And he says, you know, the best way I can put it is I never listened to that song that the Beatles put out. All you need is love. I thought it was a, I thought it was a stupid song. He said, "Now, <laughs> I get it. Like, it it all comes back to love." He's like, "I love my life. I love my family. I love my children. Like everything is so good, and I have relief from this trauma, and I'm good." That's he amazing. hasn't he hasn't revisited plant medicines since then. He's he's still kicking ass. Um. But his experience and his description was so powerful that a few months later, after I had tried some more things, I picked up meditation, I had quit drinking alcohol, you know, I was exercising a lot. I was getting better, but still had a lot of weight on my shoulders. I had a lot of guilt. I was depressed and still I couldn't help but try to be hypervigilant all the time. So that sympathetic nervous system was just leading the charge all day long and it just wears me down. So I decided to go to the same treatment facility and I had the same results. It changed everything for me. Really? Yeah. And so that was in 2018. And I haven't revisited those plant medicines. You know, my my routine now includes um, cannabis probably once every other week. And, you know, we'll get into the details there. I think more than twice a week based on what I've read. And I've read a lot of um, medical research papers. And I listen to quite a bit of scientific podcasts and watch a lot of videos on the on the neuroscience and the biology mm -hmm. more than twice a week for anybody appears to be pretty harmful and there's i think an important thing about cannabis for the listeners to understand is that it's not so simple there are two main strains of cannabis sativa and indica mm -hmm. for some people and it depends on your body chemistry. And there's no way to predict this. For some people, certain amounts of sativa with certain ratios of THC to CBD can be extremely helpful in dealing with things like anxiety, depression, trauma. For other people, it can have the opposite effect. Indica doesn't appear to have any positive effects for anyone at any particular time. It, it can help you um, relax but that's about it, right? Over time, both any ingestion of cannabis, of marijuana, will, if used more frequently than twice a week, will degrade your brain function. But that said, it is a very useful medicine for healing certain people with certain conditions. Yeah. And it certainly was for me. I've seen it work for a lot of people. I've seen it backfire for people too. Yeah. So I think something to keep in mind for the for the for this audience, especially, is we have to, and I'm glad Texas didn't open things up, despite what it could have done for the economy. I'm glad Texas didn't open it wide Absolutely. because use in adolescents and teens is shown to be really detrimental on brain development. And so no one under, under 24 years old, unless they have things like epilepsy or early onset of schizophrenia, should use cannabis at all. It just it it impairs the brain's growth yeah. too extremely. I appreciate you saying that because, you know, here's what's happened in Texas. And I think, you know, it's it's kind of, uh, you know, one step forward, two steps back a lot of times when you're talking about politics. And, and I've been doing this, I've been doing politics for a long time. So, and been through a lot of big 
issues. And the one thing that that um, you know really uh, upsets me about this particular issue is that there are people that um, are on, that are pushing to expand the medical cannabis um, program that's ready in place, but it's sort of a they sort of Trojan horse it, you know. It's it's they they wrap themselves around the idea of uh, it being a medical cannabis program, but underneath it, really, they're just hoping for you know recreational. Mm-hmm. You know, we separated ourselves um, very distinctly, and when we talk to members, we tell them, you know, I don't know what everybody else is telling you, but our group and we we formed a, a group called the Texas Patients First Foundation. And the people that work through that organization are very specific, and that is we're trying to uh, help a program for exactly what you just said. We want it to be a safe and effective and therapeutic. And when I say therapeutic, you know, I'm, I'm really talking about being able, a doctor being able to determine uh, what, condition, what conditions are, are, are good uh, that, that cannabis can help. Um, what THC level is appropriate. Yeah. All of our biologies are different. I mean, pharmaceuticals are different. And so why wouldn't you have a different THC content for certain conditions? Uh, it's not a panacea for every right. single disease that's out there, every condition that's out there. And that's, so we're trying to change the whole narrative and the stigma around cannabis and, and uh, you know, you know, everybody still probably remembers reefer madness, so it's uh, mm-hmm. it's hard to get it beyond. <laughs> yeah, I was a dare kid. You know, yeah, I dare, was terrified dare. of any and all substances that weren't oh, yeah. sold at the local drugstore. Well, you store. know, I have you have little kids. Yeah, I've got two boys. You know, you've got two girls. It's you know, we all have children. None of us, you know, are are trying to promote a program that's for people to get high. We're trying to promote a program for people to get healthy mm-hmm. and 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 treated. And so, I really appreciate your thoughts on that because um, if we can get that point across to you know the public to policymakers to regulators and they understand that that's the point of the program then i think they'll actually give us the leeway to do things uh, where we can actually get the proper research you know right to do yeah. to find out what really does work the best. I, think, I think it's interesting you know you were talking about being a dare kid and then we were talking a little bit about i think stigmas Right. And it's funny, you know, I grew up, I guess I was a war on drugs probably with Reagan more than dare came out of that. Right. You know, we didn't have the eight headed boogie monster of fentanyl where, Mm -hmm. hey, if you do, you know, hypothetically, I tell my kids, hey, if you get a, a, a drug from someone, you don't know where it came from. And whether it says it's whatever kind of opioid it is, or it says it's a Xanax who we have, Frank and I have a common friend who, who went through one of those life-changing nightmare scenarios. Lost but, a child but, to but it. so it's, you know, yeah. it's, Hey, you think you're taking a Xanax and it's a, it's a, a counterfeit drug and it's fentanyl. So, you know, you do, there is a real chance. Like I said, this boogeyman fentanyl, there is a chance you're dead with, with one pill taken. Right. But Getting back to kind of stigmas and and I think what we're talking about, I think, you know, reefer madness. And I, I think the stigma and the sale, the, the ship has sailed a little bit on the stigma with cannabis. Yeah. And when, I want to get to, a, I think, what's well, a good question for Judson and, and, and probably Frank as well. But it's so I think the stigma 
on opioids is also fading now. People have more empathy for even people on the street that are heroin addicts. It's addict, excuse me. It's not. It's not just hey, he you know, it's a druggie that lost control of his life. It's like I think people now sympathize with, man, this guy might have broken his back and started on pain pills, and then he didn't get yeah. a new prescription, and then he went to street drugs, and now look where he is. Right? right. I mean, I know I, I have so much more empathy when I when I see people because the starting point is maybe so different than it was when what I thought when I grew up. Um, you know, kind of segueing that into the military and if you're coming out or look, it's not only military, right? Complex trauma. I mean, women that have suffered abuse. Yeah. Um, you know, we speak of trafficking and certainly young, mainly women in the U.S. and across the world that are being trafficked for sex, right? They have massive complex trauma. Yeah. Um, when you have this trauma, when you're coming out, when you're when you're seeking therapy, right? Whether it be a vet coming back, you look at things. Okay, is there a stigma? It's funny there was never. I mean, there is, but there there's no real stigma to being an alcoholic, right? It's just accepted. You you know a lot of them. Yeah, which yeah. is too bad. Yeah, which yeah. Is, is it's bad. one yeah. of the most it's harmful a, drugs in the world. It, it, is. it is. It's toxic. It breaks up marriages. It 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 creates aggression. Yeah, we sell the shit out of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. right. <laughs> It's totally okay, right? It's swept under the rug. Um, you know, where, you know, I kind of wonder, and I, some of these things just popped up in my head with Judson, like, is there a stigma of, man, you're a pothead, you're just trying to seek out doing, you know, you just like getting high and it's not yeah. really therapeutic, or is it, and let's go one step further maybe, right? Like education coming back. I'm assuming that the education is minimal on any of these things coming out of the military into civilian life. Hey, you have these problems. Here's all this stuff. Not everybody has the wherewithal or is as high functioning and intelligent as Judson to go and learn everything about it. Right. To the point of a doctor's learning from farm reps, Mm -hmm. your, your brother Frank comes out and Hey, prescribe this, right? Yeah. The education's just not there. So clearly that's a component I think Texas needs to focus on as well as the education of all of these things that that we're talking about here and that Judson just pointed out of, hey, you need to, here's how it works. Here's how it might be applicable to you. But then on the other side of that is, you know, this, I think education helps get rid of that stigma. But do you feel like there is still a stigma of, man, using I feel like it's not what it used to be. It's it's going away. It's disappearing. Yeah. You know, there. Rick Perry was at this event last year for an organization called Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions. It's mm-hmm. not for profit. This is the program. Uh, this is the organization that funded my experience I mentioned earlier. So they did this gala last year, and Rick okay. Perry was there as one of the one of the speakers. And he is very pro psychedelic medicine. In fact, Texas is yeah. one of the leading states right now in advocate. Um, um, allocating funds for additional research. Uh, I think they gave a million bucks to Dell or UT Medical yeah. to spend on uh, veteran treatment with, uh, with psychedelics. All right, well, cannabis is also a plant-based medicine and it also has a high level of efficacy under the, certain con- under the right conditions, right? right, right. Um, so it, it's exciting um, to see this level of momentum when you've got Rick Perry, plus there was a three-star Navy SEAL Admiral um, endorsing plant-based medicines. We've got 
a right-wing politician. We've got a hard-nosed military leader who's basically a politician at that level, a three-star, yeah. um, coming out and saying, hey, we need to embrace these, these types of medicines. And now you've got institutions like Johns Hopkins, you know, uh, UCSD, USF, Stanford, world-leading minds who are saying, hey, we're, we are irresponsible if we don't embrace these medicines as or these plants as medicines and start to use them we need to people are suffering and it's not just people with complex trauma people with mild trauma can benefit from the same medicines so we've got to make them available but again back to the earlier risks that i mentioned every medicine has a risk you know you're you are changing your body's chemistry and if you don't do it right you can go the wrong way yeah. and and things can go really badly so it needs to be controlled but it has to be available because yeah. It's one of the best tools we have to help people. Well, and, 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 you know, controlling it, you know, has everything to do with the doctor being involved between with the patient. And I think that part of, um, in some, in some way, I mean, you know, we, we all have to control our, our, our own destiny in, in essence, but when it comes to, to health, you know, we need to have doctors that can help determine the proper dosage, the proper time to take it and all that. And, and I think the doctors are as nervous about getting involved as anybody because they their their license is basically being held you know as ransom you know that you know if they get before the board of mm -hmm. medical examiners here in texas you know because you've prescribed cannabis um even though it's legal um you know those things can happen and so protections for for the doctors are are, are, are is very important so as we're as we're trying to develop a, a true program and um and so i i think as you know, the state of Texas is moving on. You know, the session starts in January, and the uh, representative Stephanie Click, chairman of health, she has a bill, um, and she's going to you know try to expand uh, the program a little bit more. You know, one of the things she's talked about um, is chronic pain being part of that. Mm -hmm. um, it's a difficult subject for a lot of people because it's sort of uh, generic. And I think, uh, and I think we need to figure out the right terminology to use and the right, you know, um, the right way to describe what is chronic pain and when people, because you don't want somebody coming in and saying, I've, I've, I've still had the same pain in my shoulder for whatever, and I need cannabis. That's mm -hmm. not what we're, we're looking to do. We're talking about true chronic pain, something, something not, you know, a little bit less than intractable pain. We know what that is. Um, and, and then, uh, Senator Charles Shortner on the Senate side, who, um, you know, I got to say, uh, they've really put themselves and, and, and they're sticking their neck out because that's a tough issue yeah. for a conservative uh, legislator to be taken on this issue. And I, I really commend them. I commend the governor for, uh, you know, starting this whole process and, uh, and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, uh, you know, it wouldn't have passed last session. And, and and changed and expanded slightly last session, had it not been for you know for him, and uh, Dr. Schwertner. So you know they, we got to support the folks that are out there working. They got a tough job. Yeah, they do. And they got to go back home. And not everybody in their district agrees with it. And and I get that. And and um, so you know part of this is just to provide enough information and support uh, so that these members who are going to have to vote on this issue can go back and say, look, I, you know, here's some education material. Let's talk about this before you just go off and think that we're, we're trying to create some kind of, uh, you know, drug program. 
uh, that opens things up and hurts kids because certainly that is definitely not the intent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, I, I wanted to take and, you know, leave the last part of this to just let you talk about if there were some other things that you wanted to kind of talk about in, in this, uh, in this podcast that, that would be interesting, I think to our listeners and, and just, and let you talk about those. Another thing about cannabis and one of the benefits, it opens people up to new ideas, right? So a lot of time the misconception is marijuana makes you more creative. That's actually a secondary effect. What it does is it makes you more open. And people who are more open to new ideas, they are better at being creative. And so when you have a veteran who maybe grew up in a, in a household where he was a dare kid and his parents are, you know, physicians or teachers, and they just had a, a, a clean childhood and then a, you know, the military career where you're not doing any drugs. If a doctor um, wants to expose this patient to new kind of creative or alternative uh, treatments, a lot of times that's going to be met with rejection. But if we can start them with a little bit of controlled cannabis, now it opens them up not only to recognizing their situation, but to maybe exploring some additional treatments, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a big advocate for those reasons. So I think, you know, cannabis, just to, just to kind of maybe maybe put a point on it, cannabis is very useful. There's a lot of risks. I think chronic use, the research that I've read and the doctors I've heard discuss it um, with an open mind, point to chronic use as being really, really bad for you. But what I think is important is for folks suffering from trauma, is temporary use is sufficient for you to heal, right? It's sufficient, especially when taken in conjunction with other modalities, right? So I'll just talk about my experience. So cannabis was was helpful. Talk therapy was helpful. Maybe the most helpful thing for me was time in nature, right? So I mentioned community earlier, where the opposite side of that is solitude. Getting to know who you are and what's going on inside of you is a critical piece of it. And I think the reason a lot of people try to escape these pains is because it's a terrifying place to go is inside, Yeah. right? And if we don't have community to prop us up, then we we can't go into solitude. You know, you get these veterans who are hermits in the mountains. They're scary people, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you, you need both. We as humans, our psychology, we need both. We need community and we need time alone, time to tune into who we are and what's going on. Yeah. That's why meditation has become so important, right? And I think you have doctors now saying you need to meditate. Or you need to go out into nature, right? We've- well, yeah, I think the point you're making it, which is which is really great, is that there's there's more to getting healthy, and yeah. in, in whatever condition you have, than just a pharmaceutical. I mean, I'm not against pharmaceuticals. I you know use them all the time for different things, and um, but you know, I I I do know that one of the things that helped me was, you know, I kind of went through the same process. Talk therapy didn't work for me. You know, after my wife passed, you know, everybody's like, you have to go talk to somebody. And I did. And I just sat there going, I don't, I'm getting nothing out of this. Um, And, you know, I think what I did is exactly what you just described is I, I, I looked deep inside and I said, okay, so I'm depressed. I got anxiety. Okay. So what? I'm going to, I'm going to decide to just accept it and work through it. Like mm. it's a difficult place. It takes, it does take a while, but you have to get very introspective and you have to be okay that it's okay 
that, that you have anxiety and that you're depressed and you're having all these crazy thoughts. That's all it is. And you need to, you need to accept it and work through it. It's hard. It's hard. I don't think, I don't know if everybody can do that or not, but, but you have to, you know, and I didn't, I didn't have the option really of, of, of trying cannabis. I, I didn't think about it. You know, I didn't think about, uh, that as an option. Um, but it's an everyday deal. I mean, it's not like once you, once you get to that point and you've, you've learned how to sort of, uh, self, uh, regulate some of those feelings, yeah. it, it's an everyday deal. You wake up and you work at it. It's not something that just, Oh, okay. I'm okay. You know, I can move on now. It's not. So I, I, I love that. Um, what you just said, because, um, what it really is, is there's multiple, uh, disciplines, multiple treatments, to help people get through certain conditions and um, certain things that are really impacting their lives and keeping them from being functional and all the things they need to be a good, a good father, a good mother, a good, you know, good person in general. Um, I don't know if you, you probably would agree with me, but you know, I went through a stage where I was not a very good person, you know? Sure. <laughs> right. And you just like, you know, I actually, um, uh, uh, probably, I don't even know what year it was. But I, I went through this stage where I was just very combative, mm -hmm. okay? And um, I don't know why I felt like I needed to be that way, but I was. And and I just, you know, just I just felt like I wasn't a good person. I don't know if anybody else did. Sure, it was a coping mechanism. I guess it was. So one day I sat down and I uh, I did a text to, and I, and I did it, no, I did a, no, it was an email because I wanted to do it all BCC. I didn't want anybody else to know that I'd sent it to them. I did a huge list of people. And all I said on there was I just apologized to them for, the, for, for being, you know, the recipient of what I was giving out over the last, over those last years, couple of years. And, um, the response was amazing, but I had a lot of people just say, you know, uh, say, I really appreciated that. And, and, and I didn't want to send it to like, so everybody could see who I sent it. I just sent a BCC to everybody. And, um, it was kind of the beginning for me That's of, awesome. uh, kind of recovery. And I think that those are, the, uh, but, um, you know, had I had the option to use uh, a cannabis product through, you know, with my physician, I would have tried anything, yeah. you know, but uh, yeah. So I, I just want to thank you guys for what is an incredible discussion today. And uh, I hope we can do this again um, as, as things go on and we're starting the legislative session gets heated and we start having more and more uh, debate. You know, there's going to be some subjects I think they're going to come up, and I'd like to really come back and touch on those again. So uh, thanks again, and, and uh, uh, really enjoyed uh, what you had to say today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of the State House Podcast. Today's show is made possible through a generous donation from my friends at Air Wellness. Air Wellness is one of the most innovative and fastest growing vertically integrated U.S. multi-state cannabis operators. The company's mission is to drive positive impact for their patients, their customers, their employees, and the communities they serve. For more information, please visit airwellness.com. That's A-Y-R wellness.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. In addition, consider subscribing on Apple and Spotify, where you can leave us a five-star review. If you're not already following us on social media, you can find those links below in the show notes. As always, thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next time.